stress is a mental agitation or a state of mind that is agitated due to unfulfilled desires. I desire a certain amount of money. If I don't achieve that in the time frame I've given, I feel stressed. My desire is unfulfilled or interrupted. Or I expect a person I'm related to to be a certain way. They're not going to be that way. So it's unfulfilled. So I feel agitated. Hi, my name is Nikki Robertson, host of the Reinvent Health podcast. Today we are talking about the specifics of stress from both a clinical and philosophical viewpoint. Specialist endocrinologist Dr. Sandeep Ruda speaks about becoming aware of your unconscious triggers, when it's appropriate to seek medical advice, and how to make your stress work for you rather than against you. As always, your feedback is valuable. If there are any topics you would like more information on, please don't hesitate to send an email or leave a voice note on the show's Anchor FM page. If you find the information useful, please don't hesitate to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you ask 10 different humans what stress means to them, you're going to get 10 different answers. And usually the definition is going to involve some external cue that's the cause of their stress right if, if you look at the dictionary definition of stress they call it a state of physical mental or emotional tension or strain resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances so there's two parts to that is that the human experiences some tension within them and that's either physical mental or emotional and they're suggesting in that um, definition that the cause is something external, adverse or demanding circumstances. Physiologically speaking, um, the definition of stress is a non-specific response of the body to any demand or change. And it's an interesting definition because most things around us and within us are changing, which means stress is going to be a constant, you know. So um, it's interesting to look at the definition, perhaps. You know, I think if we look at it like that, there's two things that happen. Um, we externalize the cause, which I think from a human and philosophical perspective is a dangerous thing to do. Um, stress from an external perspective, we say the cause external. Uh, examples of that would be environmental things, so bad weather or climate change or something like that, or even immediate environment, you know, work environment, uh, uh, difficult occupational setup. Other external stresses are psychological stresses. So uh, this COVID crisis creates a psychological stress, they say. So that's an external psychological cause. And then social circumstances, you know, various people live in different um, sort of levels of life, whether economically or otherwise. So poor socioeconomic status could cause stress. So these are just examples of people would think of stress and, and what external stress is. The other stresses can be internal. But when we talk about internal stress, uh, in layman's terms, most people will be referring to some physical ailment, like a disease um, happening inside the body, um, and or a medical procedure, for example, if you're going for surgery or something, that stress is internal. So there are various ways in considering external and internal stresses and examples of it. 
But the question has always become, you know, how do we deal with it? Because if everything is constantly changing and there's always going to be challenges and change, whether it's environmental, psychological, social, or even internal, I mean, internally, even you've got to grow. So you've got growing pains, you've got teething pains, you've got menstrual pains, it always change. So there's always some stress on the body. So if you're going to deal with stress, where do you find steadiness that you learn to ride these waves of stress, uh, so-called? And where is it adaptive and beneficial and maladaptive? I think that's an important question. So I think if you go back to the science of stress, it was in the 1930s. Um, if I remember his name correctly, it was Hans Selye. He was the physiologist or scientist who did a lot of the work on animals, obviously. This is where they do all the studies, unfortunately. Yes. And he found that in uh, mice, uh, if he exposed the mice to lots of stress from the outside, so loud noises and noxious agents and overstimulated them, which for them is a stress, they lymphoid tissue would, would reduce in uh, volume. And remember, lymph tissue is helpful for immunity. You know, it's our uh, guardian against uh, external viruses and bacteria and etc. Um, these mice also developed um, ulcers with this chronic exposure to stress. And the mice also, interestingly, the adrenal glands where your anti-stress or stress response hormones are produced, they enlarged in size. Interesting. And even more interesting with prolonged exposure to the stresses beyond those initial three effects, what he found was that the mice started to develop diseases you would normally see in humans. So they started getting strokes and kidney disease and heart problems and those sorts of things. So Early on in the history of science, there was always this link suggested uh, that stress may be causative or contributory to a lot of the chronic and lifestyle diseases we see today. And, and that's important to understand that if we're going to talk about stress, it's not just as an academic intellectual exercise, sure. but it's in helping to understand it as a causative agent in disease as well. I think that's very important. I think we must also differentiate how the word stress is used because that's what Hans Selye meant by stress at the time. And people started using the word stress quite loosely. So if they went home and had an angry partner and they say, partner is my stress. They'll go to work and say the boss is screaming at me and they'll say the boss is causing my stress. So stress started getting loosely used as a word to describe anything that challenged you. And that's the incorrect definition. You know, uh, that's not the stress. That's an experience. It's a trigger, perhaps. But the cause of stress ultimately will be internal. And I think we can get to that a bit later mm. in terms of the um, uh, philosophical approach to stress. You know, so I think you must differentiate what stress is by definition versus the stress response. You see, a stress can be real or imagined. Uh, but the response within the body, there are some common things that occur. And maybe we want to discuss that a bit further. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what you said is how much of our stress really is imagined. And it's a complete fabrication of our past experiences projecting onto a future outcome. And for me, I find that quite like a waste of 
waste of energy. And it's, it's so often what we imagine that causes more stress than, than what really transpires. So yes, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole. I think that's really the most fascinating part here. Yeah, I think it's important to address the imagined stress concept uh, and uh, we'll discuss that at the end. You know, when a person experiences a stress response, they feel it uh, mentally as an agitation, anxiety, they can have a depression, they start making bad decisions when the mind is overwhelmed with agitation. There's, um, there's a difficulty in concentrating and being able to work. So a lot of mental symptoms can occur uh, when a person is stressed, especially if it's chronic stress. Remember with acute stress, um, you're in fight or flight mode. So you actually become more focused and concentrated on the immediate threat. But with chronic stress, it's a constant agitation where you can't function in different areas of life. And then you may even get physical symptoms, everything from uh, insomnia, you can't sleep, you can get body ache, neck pains, you can get jaw clenching, some people get tremor and stiffness, back ache, um, some may even start stuttering. And you know, I've seen patients with severe stress look like they're having a seizure even, you know. So these are the physical symptoms. But at the physiological level, it's very interesting, Nikki, and a lot of science is coming to the fore in understanding the human stress system as not just a release of hormones, but there's a pattern to it. And once again, like many of our discussions we've had, when you look at the physiology, it's almost an invitation to more moderation and rhythm in lifestyle again. And in your practice and my practice, um, we see a lot of patients who use a lot of supplements for adrenal fatigue and stress. Yes. And I thought it might be important to just mention when we use these supplements, so a lot of the products that are punted for stress are sort of licorice root extract, ashwagandha, magnesium, um, DHEA, etc. What I want to mention about that is also preceding the assessment of adrenal function. A lot of patients will have sort of blood tests mm. and um, so salivary cortisol tests. And I, I just think it's important for patients to understand that, first of all, blood and salivary testing for cortisol, which is the anti-stress hormone, have been standardized for specific diseases according to a lot of trial data and scientific data. So blood cortisol on its own is never the most reliable thing to assess cortisol status, which is why we measure free cortisol in saliva and urine. The salivary and urine tests were developed to help us assess excessive cortisol states in a disease called Cushing's disease, right? So there's a very specific indication for that. Uh, where there's excessive cortisol production in the body, which leads to major fallout like metabolic syndrome and then even uh, death if it's not well treated within a year or two. The other side of adrenal function is the depletion or non-function of the adrenal gland, and that's called Addison's disease. And Addison's disease, these patients don't survive without some form of cortisol replacement. And the assessment of that is on measuring blood cortisol levels, pituitary ACTH levels, taking a symptom profile. They usually have low blood pressure, low sugar, stomach symptoms, very severe. So that's another extreme, absence or low function of the adrenal gland. And the other one is 
overfunction through various causes. And when you're dealing with people with, uh, between those two extremes, this is where the entity of adrenal fatigue comes up, which I must say is not a coded, diagnosed, uh, diagnosable medical condition. It's a descriptive term for this entity of people who we've described in the stress mode of life. In fact, it was more described post-industrialization with our lifestyles. And the suggestion is that the adrenal gland, look, the adrenal gland does adapt to chronic stress. It becomes more sensitive and it produces more cortisol and we reduce cortisol metabolism so your cortisol lasts longer. But there is a time that comes where the adrenal gland doesn't respond as well. And that may be adrenal fatigue. And in that instance, you've got to make sure the patient doesn't have other problems. So physical diseases like iron deficiency, anemia, or B12 deficiency, or thyroid problem or something. So first, you've got to exclude other causes of the patient's uh, symptoms. You must deal with the psychology and stress of everything. And then despite all measures, if the patient's not improving, an astute medical practitioner will measure certain uh, hormones. They can measure DHEA. Uh, the cortisol is usually in the normal range, and I find the salivary cortisol is not useful for this kind of day. It's not standardized for that. So I would be cautious. A lot of things can impact on that. And then together with the clinical signs, the physical uh, examination, and some blood tests, we say, well, you may benefit from some supplementation along with lifestyle changes. And sometimes patients here may get prescribed some DHEA. And there has been some sort of anecdotal data. A lot of this comes from ancient uh, medical philosophies, as long as they're safe. Um, I do sometimes recommend to patients who are otherwise okay using, uh, you know, adrenal supplements, you know. But the key message here is the extremes of disease. There's the in-between and you've got to do the whole process objectively, responsibly, to make sure that what you are doing is the, uh, going to help the patient. And rather consult and get the testing done and get a holistic approach uh, sure. than just go with a knee jerk. You know? And always yeah. accept medical advice that makes sense to your reason and logic. You don't have to follow it out of pressure. Even what I'm saying, people should consider it and then only think about it or accept it if it makes sense through reason and logic. Yeah. yeah, I've often questioned the validity of even bothering with testing cortisol because, you know, very seldom do you see extremes on either side. And then there's, there's a, you know, you can see if somebody is, is heading towards Cushing's disease because there's very obvious signs literally in their face and in their body that there's a, there's a bigger problem going on here. So, I, I personally think cortisol testing is a waste of time. If everything else is fine, perhaps, but like you say, iron and all the, there's so many other things we could be looking at and correcting, at least not with, you know, withstanding just the way that person's doing life. There's nothing you can swallow that's going to fix your stress unless you decide to change the way you think. Absolutely. I think testing needs to be indicated, and that's okay if there's an indication. But I think it's gone a bit lopsided at the moment where we're testing everything and hoping something will come back positive. Um, yeah. And you often end up finding unnecessary things that stress you out. And yeah. you rather get the clinical perspective uh, uh, and do it the proper way. What I want to highlight is that human stress response. Remember, it's evolved to maintain homeostasis, which is balance or 
uh, uh, some sort of consistency within the body, right? So the stress response is a beneficial thing for, for us. And it achieves this objective through autoregulation, which is determined by nerves, your neural system, and hormonal systems. But the interesting thing that science has developed is that the third part to the system beyond the nerves and the adrenal hormones is that there are circadian clocks, central and peripheral clocks within the body. So deep within the brain and in the skin, you have sensors which are aligned to the solar cycle or solar time. So anything in the body that's aligned to solar time is called a circadian rhythm. And Anything less than the 24-hour cycle is called an ultradiane rhythm, right? And what they found is that a lot of our anti-stress or stress response hormones like cortisol are released in a circadian rhythm in a pulsatile way. They tend to be highest in the early part of the morning, sort of between 4 and 6, and they reach their dip at about 11 p.m. up to midnight, okay? And that very simple explanation tells you that people who are burning the midnight oil and sleeping erratically, they're going to have the stress response active when it ought to be shut down. So the area under curve or the total cortisol exposure over a period of time is going to be more. And that kind of chronic stress and chronic exposure to the hormones at the wrong hours of the day against circadian rhythm can lead to a lot of disease. And it's interesting because this chronic stress has been associated with higher cortisol levels and it becomes maladaptive. So acute stress can be help with adaptation and survival, but chronic stress can lead to a lot of the diseases you and I see in practice, obesity, cancer, metabolic syndrome, mental health disorders, cardiovascular disease, and make you more susceptible to infections, you know? So... This whole system is very tightly regulated within our body through the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal glands. And then we call the other one the sympathoadrenal medullary uh, system, which is the fight or flight system or the uh, uh, um, adrenaline system. So it's all finely tuned. And I think when a lot of us are living out of kilter of these rhythms, and then acute and chronic stress happens on that. We don't handle it well. And the effect of that in with long-term exposure, along with unhealthy diets and not enough exercise, perhaps a few bad habits like smoking, the culmination of that is going to be some disease. But I think yeah. more and more we're starting to feel like this abnormal or, or long unmanaged stress response is the common soup in which a lot of uh, diseases are born. And it's quite fascinating science that's emerging. There are even genes within our skin cells that have been shown to be sort of metabolic clocks. Now, when you start thinking about it like that, Nikki, it's so fascinating because you start realizing this entire physical body that we have is an oscillating, changing pulsatile organism. It's not as static as it may appear. And perhaps we have a responsibility to understand it better. Remember in our last podcast, I said uh, the Herbert Shelton quote, Dr. Herbert Shelton said, what happens within the body should help us conduct our outer uh, behavior. And uh, there's a lot of science here that's quite beautiful that helps us understand how to do that. So that's a bit of the science. I mean, in terms of individual 
human stress responses, they vary. And I think a lot of people in today's world, which is based on a competitive, get ahead, triumph over everyone else kind of approach, people believe they have to be functioning at the level of the alpha. But I think it's important to be empathetic towards yourself and understand that different people have different sort of limits to their load. And beyond that load, the stress response is pathological. And that's an individual approach that we need to, uh, to assess within ourselves and learn the art of that. Yeah? Uh, it's a tough one. And you see, because people don't know even how to define stress. I mean, uh, Hans Selye used to say, everyone knows what stress is, but nobody really knows. You know? So uh, if you externalize it, I think uh, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. It's more an internal, how the mind reacts. So yeah. that agitation is in the mind. And we can get into that. And look, I mean, there are some examples of this in scientific trials and observations in sort of psychology. When people get onto a roller coaster, for example, right? there'll be people in the front screaming and yelling and perspiring and the stress response is active. But there'll be others on the roller coaster sitting quietly there and they're unaffected by the whole thing. So the roller coaster ride, if that is the stress or the cause of the stress, then everybody should respond in the same way. Yet you see variances in response, not just with the roller coaster, but with anything. You know, you could find people relating to each other. The same person agitates one person, but the other person relates perfectly well. So the stress can't be in the person outside. Uh, it's in how we relate to an object. And that's an important thing I think we should get to. So yeah. I, I think in summary, the science behind it is that there is a... There's a, a, a rhythm to things. And of course, during the stress, the, the levels of hormones go up, but they maintain their pulsatility. And then obviously in the long term, it's just the chronic exposure to high levels. Which is, and look, some people lose the pulsatility because you know, the system's completely disrupted or they're taking medication which interferes with that system. Certainly when we take cortisone from outside, it can interfere with the system and get a lot of side effects. One would think that just taking cortisol from outside will help you with stress, but it's not as simple as that. We normally, I mean, the usual is to see a lot of side effects of cortisol therapy if we don't use it um, uh, responsibly. And when we get chronic stress, there's this chrono disruption, if you want, and the nervous system capacity is, uh, is overwhelmed, you know. So that's a very scientific approach. And uh, perhaps we can discuss then a little more real philosophical approach to stress. Yeah. Yeah? I'd like to do that. But just to just step back a second, because yeah. I, I see quite a lot of people who the first thing I ask them is to tell me what's going on in their lives in terms of stress. And it's almost a 50-50. Some people will say, oh, they've got terrible stress. They don't sleep. They can't switch off. And then there's a group of people who go, no, they've got no stress in their lives. And that makes me even more worried than the ones who admit that they're stressed. Because when you start digging, there's often major traumas that they have become so conditioned to living with that they're not even aware that they are managing on, on they're basically beyond burnout. And, you know, what, what point does it get where we, we have to get real um, whether one, whether it's one way or the other on that on that scale, is to realize that you know if you are sick and if you're not losing weight and if you're suffering from disease, 
something is, it doesn't just happen. You know, a car accident just happens, but lifestyle disease is like you said, it's a buildup of so many things over so many years. And it's not just one thing. This is a conditioned response. So how do we, and maybe this is the philosophy is, is where we should be going with this because how do we get real here, whether it's one side or the other? Yeah, so I mean, your immediate question is 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 a difficult one to deal with, especially in the healthcare profession. So you get these two extremes of persons: one very emotional and stress, and everything is wrong, uh, or most things are wrong. That is an emotional people. Remember, in our earlier podcast, we talk about the equipments or anatomy of a human: the physical body or the physiology, the mind with its emotions and its desires. And then the intellect, which is the logical reasoning center, which is usually in most humans today and not very well developed. So the emotional person that admits to having a lot of stress, that intellect is not guiding the brain. But then the other extreme is a person in denial. You know, they may be slightly objective, but due to a perception problem or wanting to be seen as being in control, they won't talk about it, or they're incapable to logically reason, cause, and effect. Now, you can't force it out of people. You can alert them that the law of cause and effect exists, and if you've had this situation in the past, it can result in the current situation you're in. Now, the idea is not to dig up memories to cause harm, but to actually resolve it within us that we're no longer being affected by memory. That's the idea of imagined stress. Some people in the quiet spaces will keep saying, this was done to me, that was done to me. Um, you know. And if we indulge those thoughts too much, then we're living in a thought space and not in the moment or the current uh, reality. You know, being in the moment is about being present here. Your current destiny is due to past causes. Your future destiny is dependent on your current causes. So what you have control over is only your current thoughts and actions. And they, if they're perfect and better, then your future will automatically be better. It's a given, you know. But very few have that understanding. This is why we have these discussions to highlight to humanity that there is a science uh, of life uh, art, a skill of living, and we need to learn it and start applying it. But that is, I mean, that's a lifetime of practice. And that also goes back to our upbringing. And I mean, many of us simply model and imitate the way our parents dealt with life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've spoken in shows about how the inner world simply reflects the outer world. So at what mm. point, you know, and I can't speak for everybody and there's no definitive answers. When do we start taking a handle on our lives, I would think it's when, when we hit rock bottom, but where is that for so many people? And it seems to be almost ridiculously difficult for people to change the way they do life. Yeah. Look, uh, change cannot happen as a right angle. You're going in one direction and then to do a sudden 90 degree change in a different direction is very difficult because the momentum of an individual's desires and life patterns is so powerful in that direction. But like a flowing river, I mean, you can change the direction over time through building banks that direct it slowly. So it becomes more of a curve rather than a right angle. And that requires perhaps patience on our side, you know, and also no result orientation on the patient side because it's not going to happen overnight. I always use that analogy that my teacher uses. If you've got a 
wall that's painted blue and you want to paint it yellow, the first coat of yellow paint is going to make it look greenish. <laughs> and you're going to have to keep applying many coats of paint until you get that established yellow color. And such is the nature of human life and managing the mind. Wherever you are now, you're stuck with that destiny. That's how you're going to behave. But as you do the self-work and the penny drops, then that curve happens over time. And it's never too late to start at any point in life because it's the direction that matters, not the destination. To the degree that we apply the self-work or this art or skill of living uh, with help and guidance and knowledge, to that degree, your life will improve. What used to stress you will no longer stress you. And then uh, you may be able to deal with more and start standardizing life. And eventually it settles where it needs to. You're never too old or too sick to change the way you've been doing life. It's really important to understand that. No, it's the purpose of human life. Yesterday I had to give a talk in Burma, interestingly. It's so interesting these times. I'm able to give a talk to doctors in Burma. Yes. Uh, so Yangon, Myanmar. And they're going into Buddhist Lent at the moment. And the discussion was around how to manage patients with diabetes during the Buddhist Lent. You know? And, you know, we spoke about the purpose of fasting there, for example. Nowadays, we're fasting, and we discussed it in the previous podcast. Nowadays, with fasting, we fast to reduce weight or to improve a metabolic or health outcome. But Siddhartha Gautama, the uh, Buddha, the prince who became Buddha, he didn't fast for an outcome. He fasts to achieve the goal or the purpose of human life, which is eternal bliss. So he went through the difficulty and hardship of managing that mind so he could reach bliss. So every human's prerogative is eternal bliss. That's our destiny. But to get there, I mean, the Four Noble Truths, one of the main Noble Truths, Buddha says that the cause of suffering is desire. And the fourth one is uh, on that list is if you get rid of desire, then you have eternal bliss. So that's the only solution. So sure. that's the whole point that we discuss this philosophy so that humans can start reducing desire. Don't suppress, don't overindulge. So while we're on that note, we were going to discuss the philosophy of stress. And the best definition of stress I've learned is that stress is a mental agitation or a state of mind that is agitated due to unfulfilled desires. I desire a certain amount of money. If I don't achieve that in the time frame I've given, I feel stressed. My desire is unfulfilled or interrupted. Or I expect a person I'm related to to be a certain way. They're not going to be that way. So it's unfulfilled. So I feel agitated. And that agitation activates this whole chronic fight-or-flight system. So you realize then that it's all about, as you said earlier, it's not imagination, it's perception. It's how we perceive the world and relate to it that will determine how agitated we get in response to desires. Are our desires of the world and people and things reasonable or unreasonable? Which means if you want to reduce stress in the long term, you've got to become very objective. You've got to develop that reasoning and logical center and deal with more fact rather than opinion and fiction. You see, um, because peace is a state of mind that is without agitation. It's very interesting. So when you're peaceful, you don't have agitation in the mind. When you're agitated, you're stressed. So what causes that agitation is monitoring that flow of desire that is constant. So 
we cannot expect the world to fulfill every one of our desires. That is a very egotistical, selfish approach to life. You can't expect summer to be cooler. You can't expect winter to be warmer because you like it that way. And having that expectation creates the agitation and the chronic stress, right? With our work cycles, this capitalistic system we've built. I mean, I had a patient this morning. I mean, interesting chap, poor guy. So many different lifestyle diseases diagnosed in the last two months. But preceding that, he had been working 18 hours a day with lack of sleep and goals and deadlines, and he doesn't perform. He gets fired. So we've created that abnormal system against natural rhythm. And then we expect our physiology to work within that. And it doesn't. And that in itself creates stress because your desires are now unfulfilled. You see? So, you know, if you think about desire in that philosophical context as an as a interruption or unfulfilled desire, then if you're going to treat desire or stress, um, what do you do? So people will say, well, then I got to fulfill every desire. And that is true. The minute you crave that chocolate cake, if you don't have it, you're agitated and you stress. Your desire is unfulfilled. But when you have it, there's that moment of bliss. But the law is, just like there's a law of gravitation and the chemical laws and physical laws and all of that, the law is that every time we quench a desire, we feel that peace, but we develop more desires. It's an interesting concept, Nick, and you would have seen it in your practice with your patients. Yeah. Right? You have the chocolate cake and you think, I'm happy. But then after a week, the same chocolate cake doesn't make you happy. So you desire something else. So the philosophers of all the wise men says, your senses gravitate to sense objects. And if you deal with stress by fulfilling your desires, you get consumed by so many more desires, they'll never be satiated. So what's the alternative then? The alternative is to go introspective, as you said, and monitor your desires and work them out through an intellectual discourse by developing your intellect, by questioning things. Is that so? Do I need to have it? Um, and don't take anything at face value. When you find yourself on the side of the majority, you've got to re-question your life. So if you're doing what everybody's doing, herd mental, everybody's stressed, you see? So you've got to pull back, introvert, bring the logical center to watch the desire, and slowly over time, keep working. Start with the easy desires, the low-hanging fruit, work on the bigger ones, and then you develop an objectivity. You know, I think people try to deal with stress in all the wrong ways. So we have these practices. So we will go on a holiday and they go, even that, I'm stressed, I'm going on a holiday. So what happens? The desire is fulfilled. So they feel a temporary peace. But what happens after two weeks back at work? I need another holiday. So all these temporary kicks, which give you solace just for a short time, they don't work in the long term. What we need to do is we have to rise above desire through knowledge and wisdom. And we need to elevate ourselves to a higher pedestal of knowledge and learning by understanding that desire needs to be managed. And that way, if you have less desires, there's less likelihood of them being interrupted and unfulfilled. And then there's no stress, you see? Sure. Um, it, yeah. it, it really requires some thought. It, it, it's a type of discussion that 
we don't talk about because, you know, I'm just going to go to a stress clinic. I'm just going to detox. I'm just going to listen to someone on a podcast and then I'll be less stressed. Even meditation and all these practices are done in people who are carrying such baggages of thoughts and desires that you suppress the thoughts for a short term. You feel okay for a short term. It's never going to work out in the long term. We take ourselves everywhere we go. And think about it also. When a lot of our desires are selfish, meaning the minute you contact someone, there's a feeling of what can I get out of this? Or the minute I get a job, there's a feeling of how am I going to promote myself? You know, when that feeling of ego, I-ness and selfishness is there and desires are, are sort of textured with selfishness, there's always going to be agitation, right? Um, my teacher once pointed out and he said, Doc, have a look at society and show me one unselfish person that is agitated or stressed. And I couldn't think of anyone, Nikki. It's true. Have a look in society, right? You'll never think of someone like the Dalai Lama being stressed, right? You'd never think of Christ or Buddha as appearing stressed, even though a Christ person or Christ himself can endure such physical stress of physical injury, right? He still has the capacity to say, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. So when you're completely unselfish and you don't have desires that are towards yourself, actually there'll be no stress. It's a fascinating concept to investigate. And people may say, well, nobody's truly perfectly unselfish. Well, there are those God-men who achieve that, whether it's a Prophet Muhammad, a Buddha, a Krishna, a Christ. But even relatively, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King or any unselfish person we've seen to the degree they're unselfish, they're relatively peaceful and content and they can endure more. The more selfish a person, the more they're acquiring just for themselves or their immediate kin, there's a lot of agitation. And you would have seen it now with the COVID crisis as well as an example, not saying any of these things as a judgment, but as an analysis. I mean, there are people who are so poor. I've had some contact with people in the slums of India. And, you know, I asked them how they are, and they're like, we're absolutely fine. The COVID crisis is going on. We're managing with our basics. But then here in Johannesburg, in Senton, we've got wealthy people with majorly um, expansive material wealth, very safe from food, security, clothing, all of that point of view, access to the best medical care. But these persons are the most stressed and most anxious right now, you see? So what's the difference? The material surroundings are perfect. You're more protected. The guy in the village in India is perfectly fine with the little he's got, and there's a big crisis in the world. But this one here, and the guy in the village is thinking about his family and carrying on with his farming and, you know, praying and being devoted and all of that. And on this side, there's what's going to happen to... Uh, my business, my family, right? Well, nothing is happening yet. There's that possibility. We can plan for it. If you look at it from that elevated knowledge-based perspective, it's not an individual human that's suffering here. It's the world, you know? So if you're up on that space station uh, that someone just went up to with Elon Musk ship recently, and you look down at the earth, you say, oh, there's a species that's under crisis right now. 
But when you internalize it, you become very myopic, very constricted, very ego, very selfish. Then there's going to be a lot of stress. And in fact, you'll see a lot more uh, stress-related diseases there, bypasses, heart attacks, strokes in those kinds of individuals. Very reactive. A lot of judgment. Analyze this, use this kind of knowledge to see to what degree that exists in us. The minute I feel agitated, I ask myself, have I been selfish here? Have I, is there something that I'm missing an angle? I need to maybe look at it from a bigger perspective. And when you learn that lesson, that agitation settles and stress reduces. And the other way to deal with stress is also standardization of life. You know, live within your means, not beyond your means. If your desires are just below what you have, you're always wealthy but you can have huge money in the bank account. If your desires are beyond what that quantum of wealth can purchase you, you're still going to feel poor and agitated and chasing. That's a very important point to, to remember that rather than work on the external quantum, rather work on your desires, settle them. And you can live within your means. And then if you want to acquire more when you have elbow room, by all means do. But ultimately, it's about getting into it and making that effort to learn this art and skill of living and the various ways of doing that perhaps we can discuss another time. Yes, yeah, it's very true. Um, you know, they say it's, it's easier to be miserable in a Ferrari than on a bicycle, but I don't really agree. I think the more you have, the, the more high stakes the pressure becomes. Um, you know, we can be equally happy or unhappy with, with very little. And at the end of the day, when people say what really makes them happy it's not, it's very seldom, you know, the amount of Louis Vuitton bags they've got in their cupboard that's really made them happy, healthy human beings. Um, a little bit of, you know, introspection is, I think, what's mm-hmm. missing from humanity at the moment and probably one of the, the key factors to health. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's the benefit of crisis. Remember, the word crisis means in itself, from its origin, decision point. Yeah, the Chinese have two uh, meanings associated with the word crisis. The one is the danger, and the other part is the opportunity. You know, so wherever crisis has been experienced in history, philosophically speaking, the deep thinkers have gone into the nature of crisis and stress that comes with it, and realized that actually it is the greatest point of potential for evolution, because. When things are always perfectly fine, we become weak and um, complacent. But when there's just the right amount of pressure and change, and as a human, we can use those opportunities by uh, regulated self-effort and thought to catapult us to new levels of evolution. But that evolution for humans now is no longer going to happen much physically. It has to happen internally at this mental level taking us to the supramental and many philosophers have alluded to that internal happiness whether it's old eastern philosophers like Lao Tzu and uh, the Vedantic philosophers and those great sages um, Vivekananda etc or even modern European German philosophers the Friedrich Nietzsche's the author Schopenhauer's they've all alluded to happiness being an internal construct it's there already it is what you are but it's these desires and selfishness and ego to various degrees that are permutating around the, uh, in your mind and creating this world of agitation. Actually, the mind is a reflection. I mean, the world is a reflection of your mind. So no mind, no problem. And I think ultimately <laughs> we've got to keep working on the 
on the mind as such. But you can't do it if you don't know what your purpose is. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you must have this feeling that your eternal bliss does not lie in this terrestrial world. It is never going to be there. And that discussion is no longer had. You know, it was there in biblical times. It was there in uh, the philosophical eras. Today, it's all material and terrestrial. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping anyone listening would um, be inspired to start thinking differently, especially if you're feeling overwrought and overrun. It's time to start questioning how we do life. Otherwise, um, you're going to get sick and it's harder to put you back together. It's much easier to prevent this from happening in the first place. Thank you again for your valuable time. Um, it's always so great to speak to you and get our brains expanding in, in different directions and questioning what we think on a daily basis. It's really a tonic for the soul. So thank you very much. This episode was sponsored by The Nutrition Prescription by Reinvent Health. The one thing we all have a degree of control over is how we manage our health through the choices we make. Believe it or not, healthy nutrition is more simple than we've been led to believe when you know what to do. If you're going to get away with anything positive out of 2020, let it be your wake-up call to make a change. Use this time in the best way possible. Give your body what it truly needs in order to thrive. No matter your age, income level or health state, you can learn new habits that will help you feel stronger, more energized and motivated to live better. The Nutrition Prescription is an online learning program designed for anyone wanting to learn the basics of healthy nutrition and customize the knowledge into a way of life that does not involve restrictive dieting. Once you've signed on, you will receive access to hours of videos, meal plans, recipes, articles, and regular webinars that will keep you up to date with the most current thinking around health and nutrition. To sign up or find out more, go to reinventhealth.co.za and click on online learning.